0: Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting recent work in natural language processing.
1: This is Matt Gardner and Walid Ammar. We are research scientists at the Allen Institute for Artificial Intelligence. Today, our guest is Graham Newbig. Graham is an assistant professor at Carnegie Mellon University. He works on various problems in natural language processing. In particular, he's interested in machine learning approaches that are both linguistically motivated and tailored to applications, such as machine translation and speech recognition. It's a great pleasure having you with us today, Graham.
2: Uh, Yeah, nice to be with you.
1: So uh, today we would like to to pick your mind on uh, some of the recent advances in machine translation, specifically uh, the main milestones in neural machine translation, and also to discuss uh, the paper that you've recently published at ACL uh, on uh, neural machine translation via binary code prediction. Uh, so mm-hmm. let's start with the machine translation discussion and uh, what your views are on uh, on this, like the recent uh, advances.
2: Okay. Um, so I think basically it's a really exciting time to be in uh, machine translation right now because uh, incredible progress has been made in the past four years or so um, due to the advent of ner- neural machine translation, and you can see very real advances where uh, language pairs that were very difficult to do before, like Japanese English or Chinese English, are actually getting to the point where you can uh, read and understand uh, the text um, to a point where you can actually get most of the useful information out of it, which I think is really exciting. Um, Of course, there are still lots of problems uh, left. So um, recently I tried to uh, cook a Korean dish and I got, um, I got a bag that had the instructions in Korean. And I tried to run it through Google Translate and realized that there's still a lot of work to be done. <laughs> um, but for, uh, for domains where we have lots of data, um, for example, or language pairs where we have lots of data, things are, are really much better than they were uh, a couple of years ago.
1: So are you saying that uh, in cases where we don't have a lot of data, you would still uh, recommend using free space machine translation? Um,
2: I I wouldn't go so far as to say that, um, although you could make an argument that that is the case. Um, There was just a paper that came out uh, by Philip Cohen called um, Six Challenges for Neural Machine Translation, which will be uh, appearing in the workshop on neural machine translation at uh, at ACL, which I'm also co-organizing. Um, But he has a very interesting example of uh, where you train a neural machine translation on data in a particular domain and then use it to translate data in a different domain. And you can see the phrase-based machine translation system kind of falls apart, and you don't know, uh, you can't figure out what it's supposed to be saying. But the neural machine translation system uh, basically uh, attempts to translate translate into something it already knows how to say. So if it's translating something from the Bible, uh, or if it's trained on data from the Bible and it's translating something from another domain, everything will come out very biblical and might not have anything to do with the the input. Um, And in a way, that's a little bit scary because, you know, you never know what you're going to get. And uh, there are, uh, you know, you have trouble having confidence that what you get is actually what what, uh, what came in on the source side. But overall, I think the average level has really gone up a lot, um, even in some uh, lower data scenarios.
0: So you said earlier that Japanese English and Chinese English now work a whole lot better with neural machine translation systems than they, than mm-hmm. they did previously. What What mm-hmm. is it about these new techniques that make it work so much better? So I think the biggest thing um,
2: if you just look at the results, the biggest thing that you'll notice is that the sentences that come out are actually grammatical, and they actually make um, they actually make sense in the target language. And I think that's partly because you have a really strong uh, language model on the target side that is based on uh, training on
0: lots and lots of data. Um, didn't, they also did, seem...
2: Didn't, uh, we yeah, ha- sorry, go ahead.
0: didn't we have that previously, though? So like, you, like with a... Synchronous context-free grammar, or whatever you have, a language model on the target side that you're using as you're decoding. So, what what's actually different here?
2: Well, there we normally used n-gram language models, which are just not anywhere near as strong as uh, LSTM-based language models, uh, for example. Another thing is uh, that is actually surprised, quite important is whether you're able to generate things that the language model likes in the first place. So, if you had a synchronous context-free grammar or a phrase-based machine translation system, uh, it could be that g- the good sentences are just not in the search space, not in the space of hypotheses that you're considering. Um, and in that case, you, you know, no matter how strong your language model is, you can't uh, recover. Uh, on the other hand, uh, that's kind of the core reason why. Uh, neural machine translation systems tend to produce things that don't match the source at all. It's because they believe in the language model and go in and generate uh, whatever they think sounds natural. And so.
1: Makes sense. So uh, what would you say the main milestones were in the last few years in uh, neural machine translation? Uh, it seems to me that sequence-to-sequence models and the introduction of the uh, neural language model um, and... Uh, the uh, attention mechanism are three of these milestones, but I'm not sure what other, uh, what other milestones are there.
2: So I, I think the, yeah, the the main milestones are basically the encoder, uh, encoder-decoder encoder architecture by, um, which actually has been around for a long time, but uh, was kind of rediscovered in 2013, 2014, by uh, Kalkbrenner and Blonsom and then Satskever et al. And then attention, um, which came out in 2014, 15 uh, by Bednarek et al. Are the two really, really big milestones. Um, other milestones are the use of subword units for machine translation. Um, that is either in the form of byte pair encoding uh, by Senric et al. Um, and uh, or word piece models, which are used by people uh, in Google often. And basically, the idea there is that um, there's two problems with using lots of data for um, or sorry using large vocabularies in neural machine translation, and that is uh, one that computation becomes too heavy and two that you can't generalize to words that you've not seen before. And apparently splitting things up into subwords basically is a really effective way at fixing that.
0: So th- um, So this helps with like uh, morphologically rich languages where you need to like, make sure the inflections match between the two languages.
2: Um, it, it definitely helps. It doesn't solve all the problems there, but you're basically making, making it possible for the neural MT system to try to solve those problems. Where if you just have an unknown word and you treat it as uh, a special UNK token, um, then you're never going to be able to translate that properly. So that, that's a big, uh, a big advance, I guess.
1: Could you, so what is the, uh, the main way you do this uh, in the paper that you mentioned?
2: So, um, the two methods there are slightly different, but, um, the, the idea behind byte parent coding is basically, first you split everything into characters. Um, spaces are, uh, either treated in a special way or just as an underbar, uh, special underbar character. And then you find the character bigram that has the highest frequency in that corpus. Um, and then you merge that bigram together into a single word. Um, and then now you have a new corpus, you count up the, uh, the probability of all bigrams and you merge them together. Um, and the, basically this allows you to find high frequency, uh, chunks of characters that you then treat as the uh, basic units in your, uh, modeling there. Um, the word piece model is a little bit more, uh, kind of smart in a way it, it goes through and, um, uh tries to find a segmentation of the units um, that work um, that give you a high unigram probability over the entire corpus. So it's a, more of a probabilistic model. Um, there are lots and lots of models for unsupervised word segmentation, but one of the big things in, um, one of the big things in machine translation is we work with very, very large data sets so um a lot of the previous unsupervised word segmentation models were great more accurate than the models we're using now but they're super, super slow so we can't scale them up to uh you know millions of sentences which is why i think the bpe and uh and word piece models
1: took off cool and uh in terms of the uh how people do attention so uh i'm not quite sure about the latest Developments in machine translation and what's like state of the art and how to do the attention. Do we need uh, structured attention? Do we need to have to actually uh, make uh, any dependencies when we're doing uh, we're computing the attention probabilities uh, for different words in the target sentence?
2: Um, so I think that's a very interesting problem, and there isn't any research that gives a really conclusive uh, solution to that. Um, but one thing that I think definitely needs to be considered to some extent is the idea of whether you've already translated a word or not. Um, and that is used either during training or during decoding some concept of word coverage in the source sentence. And um, the reason why this is important is because when neural MT systems work well, they perfectly translate the whole sentence to get all the content right. But again, when they get something that they're not uh, very confident about, they'll either repeat the same word over and over and over again, um, or they'll drop words that uh, that exist in the source, but they just decide not to translate in the target. Um, and even with models trained on large amounts of data, even with models, um, you know, if you just use the vanilla model, you end up having those problems uh, Anytime you kind of get out of your comfort zone when you're trying to translate things. I think.
1: So we recently read the Chris Manning's paper um, on, I think it was summarization.
0: Yeah, Abigail mm-hmm. Lee and Chris Manning. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, and, mm-hmm. we, uh, and we had a cool method for, for doing this. Uh, I think they accumulate the probabilities that, uh, that they attribute the uh, the attribute to each of the words in the source uh, mm-hmm. document, and uh, the more the more attention you give to these words, the less likely it will be that you're pre- you're re- reusing them in the future. So mm-hmm. I wonder if that's uh, if there's a similar thing in machine translation that people use.
2: Yeah, I, I think that idea uh, kind of originated in machine translation, um, or m- maybe even before that originated in uh, in image captioning. Um but the there's a good paper uh, by uh, Trevor Cohn, which was actually um, quite a while ago now, two years ago, on structured alignment biases for uh, neural machine translation, um, which I, I really one of the reasons why I really like this paper is because it still remembered what we did in the statistical machine translation paradigm and it knew we needed coverage, it knew we needed an idea of, how many words a particular word will translate into. It's called fertility. Um, and then uh, other things like bidirectional training. And all of these were things that had been examined before neural machine translation came out. And it went in and showed which ones were uh, useful and which ones were less useful. Um, interestingly, in that paper, uh, the conclusion was a lot of these are not very useful, but this particular one, uh, the bidirectional training one, did end up being very useful. So. You know, I, I think uh, those papers are very interesting. You know, you, you try a bunch of things and then report all of them, regardless of whether they uh, work or not, so.
0: so. do you follow language log? Um, uh, idly, yes. Uh, Mark Lieberman, who I guess is in Pittsburgh right now, uh, has uh-huh. had a series of posts on uh, seeing how Google machine translation goes wrong when you give uh-huh. it, uh, for example, uh, identical strings, varying length strings of the same Japanese character. Have you have you seen these posts?
2: Uh-huh.
0: I I have that, and that's uh, pretty funny. And any idea what's going on with this? So uh,
2: I guess that kind of goes entirely back to the um, what I mentioned before, which is neural machine translation breaks when it gets out of its comfort zone. And of course, it's never in its training data. It's never seen the same Japanese character over and over and over again because you know who would translate that Uh, so um because of that you know phrase-based translation what it would do there is it would say okay i've seen this uh once uh in my training data as a single character or as two characters and then i'll do that over and over and over again but neural mt you know it's it's calculating things as a a, uh is a vector of continuous numbers and it doesn't have anywhere near the constraint so it just tries to um Tries to generate something that it thinks is plausible.
0: Yeah, um, and I, I guess I, for the listeners who aren't familiar with this, I should have said that you. It hmm. turns out if you feed uh, varying length char- uh, strings of the same character in a variety of languages, uh, you can get interesting something that some people have said is like poetry out. Like you, you get different um, short words, and it changes. You add you add one more character, and the output just changes in really unpredictable ways. It's just kind of funny to look at. Yep.
1: So I, uh, I'm wondering if the machine translation uh, still without results in uh, neural machine translation uh, copy the words, like use any kind of copy operations, um, which like you can't directly use the machine translation, but you can use in combination with a translation table, uh, potentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm wondering if, if this is something that people have tried.
2: Um so we had a paper at EMNLP uh, 2016 on incorporating lexicons into neural machine translation. So this is just a dictionary where you have one word translate into another word with a um, with a particular probability. And that is actually very effective at helping get, get rid of uh, some of the uh, crazy results uh, that you get. Because um, basically it gives the neural MT system a very good hint about... Uh, how it should be translating each word. Um, and you can use that to bias the probabilities that it's uh, that it's using. And that helps your translation of content words, for example. It helps not translate uh, random content words into random other content words. Like we had an example in our corpus where it translated Tunisia into Holland um, because, you know, they're similar semantically, uh, but... Uh, or Tunisia to Norway, sorry. I, I made the same mistake in our system did, But, um, but yeah, basically, uh, yeah, so there's that method. There's an, a couple of other methods, um, that kind of follow up on that or expand it, uh, to doing phrases, uh, or are trying to expand it to doing phrases as well. Um, and That's particularly effective when you don't have very much training data. So if you have a very small amount of training data, then phrase-based systems can still be competitive or even better than neural MT systems. Uh, But incorporating something like that does uh, raise the level of the neural MT system to be about the same or better than the phrase-based system, even when you have uh, much less. So um, I think it's really important. It's something that people will continue to be thinking about, I imagine. Cool.
1: And... uh Are there any tools that uh, people should be able to use uh, out of the box in order to do neural machine translation now, Uh, like uh, CDEC and uh, the other uh, phrase-based machine translation systems?
2: So there there are a lot of tools. Um, Maybe the most widely used ones are OpenNMT by Harvard and Nemetis by by Edinburgh. Um, Of course, I'm making my own toolkit. Called XNMT, which is kind of designed to be a research based toolkit um, where you can try new ideas quickly. Um, There's also a number of, a couple very nice uh, releases by uh, Facebook and Google recently, where Facebook has their new uh, uh, method of um, translating using convolution, and Google has a a new method translating basically uh, using only attention operations and not uh, not using recurrent neural networks, which is kind of a... Both of those are kind of new uh, paradigms. I haven't actually tried those two tool- toolkits out myself, but uh, it's high on the list of uh, the things that I want to try to do. So. It's
1: interesting. So I can imagine how uh, you could use uh, attention only to substitute for RNNs. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how... Uh, so th- does the Facebook uh, model just replaces RNNs with CNNs to aggregate uh, like to, to aggregate the uh, semantics across the sentence?
2: Yeah, ba- basically. And actually the, the two ideas uh, came out within a month of each other and are similar in concept and different in implementation. Uh, and basically the idea is we don't want to use uh, recurrent neural networks because that locks us into calculating one word at a time as opposed to calculating uh, calculating for the entire sentence at the same time. And if you can calculate a single operation for the whole sentence, you can think about uh, how much faster that would be on hardware like a GPU, for example. So um, the, the Facebook paper is convolutional sequence-to-sequence learning, and the Google paper is attention is all you need. Um, so th- those are two nice papers to check out.
1: Um, so, transitioning into the paper, uh, one of the problems with the neural machine translation is that we have to do this giant softmax uh, to predict the next word in the target sentence. Uh, so, mm-hmm. could you tell us a little more about this problem and uh, what are like, previous attempts to solve this? Mm-hmm. So,
2: the, the basic problem is that um, we have a large vocabulary in our targets uh, in our target language. It might be anywhere um, if we're using words as our targets, it might be anywhere from four uh, like 40,000 to 80,000. And then we turn everything else into unknown words and we can't translate the unknown words very well. As I mentioned before, subword models um, are very popular now, but even with, subword models, we're still calculating 8,000 to maybe 32,000 words in our target vocabulary. And when we do so, we have to do uh, a big matrix multiplication over all of those uh, things in our target. Um, And then we have to calculate the the probabilities of all of those words using a softmax function. And that can be very costly, and it's particularly costly um, if you're not using a GPU. So uh, let's say you wanted to deploy um, a machine translation system on a mobile device or something like that. Um, obviously, you know maybe mobile devices of the future will have NVIDIA Teslas in them, but uh, they don't. They don't at the moment. So in order to in order to do that, you want to limit the um, the amount of time that this takes to get your translations um, more quickly. Um, so that is. The problem, you know, the big softmax is slow in training. Um, It's slow in testing. It also has a lot of parameters uh, because you have parameters for each of the, um, a a big parameter matrix uh, where you have one vector for each of the output words. Um, So the the goal is to make that um, more computationally efficient and more compact. and I guess there's a lot of there's a lot of previous uh, work on that before our paper at ACL. Um, and you can do things like uh, calculating a class, a word class first, and then a uh, given the class, calculate the probability of the word. Um, or you can also do things like at training time sampling some negative examples, so you don't use everything uh, for your. Um, So you don't use all of the words as negative examples, but only use a subset. Um, But up until now, uh, none none of these methods have been um, basically fast at training time, fast at testing time, and uh, parameter efficient. Um, And also a lot of them are uh, kind of difficult to implement on the GPU, uh, which is very, very important for training large models. So the idea behind our paper is very, very simple in a way. Um, So normally what we do is we assign each word in the target a particular ID, right? So the word the might, or maybe the unknown word symbol might be word number zero. uh, And then the word the might be word number 10 or a might be word number 15. And then we have dog and cat and they all have their word. Uh, IDs, right? Um, so what we're doing in this paper is instead of predicting the word ID as one element of this big softmax, we're just predicting the bits of the word ID. Um, so if you uh, have, I, I think most people listening are familiar, but if you have a, a large vocabulary of one million uh, of one million uh, words. Basically, that is 2 to the 20. Um, one 1 million is uh, a little bit less than 2 to the 20. So you can express all of those words in 20 bits. So instead of calculating over those 1 million words, instead we calculate 20 bits, and our calculation gets much, uh, much, much faster. Um, and it's easy to run on the GPU. It, it's fast, even on the CPU. We got a, a 12 time, gain, and speed on the CPU, for example. So, so there's is, a lot of fine
0: details and stuff, but yeah, sorry, go ahead. So this sounds like it. Uh, there have been, as you said, these class-factored softmaxes or hierarchical mm-hmm. softmaxes, and this, mm-hmm. this feels like it's pushing the hierarchical softmax to its nested extreme, like where Exa- you just have a binary branching uh-huh. all the way to the bit?
2: So exactly, and it is the hierarchical softmax, uh, with one constraint. So the hierarchical softmax is a generalization of this uh, binary code, the the binary code thing that I talked about here. Um, so the constraint is that in the hierarchical softmax, you have a, bi- uh, a tree or a binary branching tree. Um, and if you additionally add the constraint that at each level, if the node with depth one, all of the nodes with depth two, all of the nodes with depth three, share their parameters, then that will be the same as our method, essentially. Um, You you might need a whiteboard uh, or a piece of paper to work it out, but these two things are essentially exactly the same. Yeah, that makes sense. So that has huge computational advantages, but it also um, reduces the expressivity of the model, so we have to have a couple tricks uh, to get it to work properly.
0: Do uh you... I remember talking to some people about trying to be smart in these hierarchical softmaxes about how you cluster words so that the, mm-hmm. the hierarchy is more efficient. When you described this, though, it sounded like you're just taking the word ID and taking its bit representation and not doing anything particularly smart. Is that, is that true? Um, so it, actually there's a there's a small footnote in our
2: paper that explains uh, about this um, that you'll probably miss if you don't look carefully but we did try a couple smart things about how to cluster uh, things and the basic idea is that um, perhaps if the if each bit had some sort of meaning, it would be easier to predict. So for example, uh, nouns tend to be, have their third bit be one and then everything else tends to have its third bit be zero or something. Um, And I think the basic concept is a good idea, but we tried several incarnations of this where uh, we basically clustered words together using agglomerative clustering um, uh, based on their word-to-vec vectors or um, a couple other things in that vein and nothing ended up working better than just having word IDs that were sorted according to word frequency. Um, so uh, I think there's definitely room to improve on there, but we uh, we weren't able to immediately uh, get that to work. Interesting.
1: So one of the uh, potential problems with this method is that even changing, even getting only one bit wrong will throw you off in a completely different uh, space, right? So mm-hmm. Um, You discussed two methods in the paper to adjust Mm to this. Uh, Could you tell us about these two?
2: Yeah, certainly. So, um, that's a very, so this was a very good lead-in. So basically, uh, the first method that we used to solve this problem was a thing called um, error correcting codes. So, um, error correcting codes are, the idea is instead of taking your one million word vocabulary and shoving it into 20 bits, you add some redundancy. So instead of making it so every single bit string is, uh, is equivalent to a particular word, you make it so instead of using 20 bits, you use maybe 30 bits. Um, so once you change your 20 word vocabulary or your 20... Uh, one million word vocabulary into 30 bits. There are suddenly a lot of strings that don't mean anything. Basically, a lot of strings that aren't any particular word. Um, and then the idea is you predict the bits of the output word. And when you get something that doesn't correspond to any particular word, you find the word that's closest in that bit uh, um, in that bit vector. And so, it, yeah, I guess I guess it's like the Hamming the Hamming distance. Uh, you could think of it as the Hamming di- the true bit vector that has the lowest Hamming distance from the other ones, um, from uh, the vector that you actually predicted. Um, what we actually did was something a little bit more involved, uh, using something called convolutional codes, um, which have a variety of good properties. Um, but basically, the idea is add redundancy and then, um, and then try to recover the original string when you're a little bit off.
1: So does, how, how well does this work?
2: Um, so that particular method is absolutely essential to making it, uh, work. I actually realized they don't have the results table with me now, so, um, uh, I, I could, I'll pull it up while I continue talking. But um, that, that is absolutely essential, um, but it doesn't get us all the way to um, just using the accuracy that you get from just using the softmax. Um, so the, the next thing that we ne- needed to do um, is we kind of gave up a little bit on just predicting the, uh, the bits, and instead um, for the top n most frequent words, we predict them directly using the softmax. And um, then, for all of the other words in the vocabulary, we predicted them using the binary, uh, the binary codes uh, that we
0: mentioned here. Yeah. And when you say n, what how much is n? How many? like a hundred, a 1, thousand? Of...
2: So, so we have a, a figure in the paper where we, uh, where we vary n, but basically we, we tried with um, 512 in 2048. And um, it, it depends on the data set. Um, if you have a data set with a slightly smaller vocabulary than 512 was enough, um, otherwise 248, uh, or 2048 uh, was uh, enough to get you pretty close to what you had before. Um, so on, for example, decoding speed on the CPU, I'm looking at the paper now, Compared to just using the binary error-correcting codes, is about 1.3 times slower uh, by by doing this uh, this change. So it, it does make it a little bit slower, but still, compared to the 12-fold uh, decrease that you get from just using the regular softmax, it's not a huge uh, sacrifice.
0: So uh, backing up just a little bit, the Binary, the error correcting codes. Does it have any? Does it make a difference at training time, or is this only something that you do at test time? Only test time. Um, that's not to say that
2: if you were really clever, you could not come up with a way to do something at training time. I think it'd be really cool if you could. Um, but uh, yeah, for our paper, it's just at test time. Okay.
1: That's good. Uh, so in the Paper, you mentioned that one of the problems with previous uh, solutions for this problem, um, for example, the hierarchical, uh, the hierarchical softmax, is that it's not efficient to do this uh, in in a batch, uh, a batched GPU machine. Uh, yeah. Could you explain why this is the case uh, and how does this uh, proposal fix the problem?
2: So the hierarchical softmax, the problem there is basically um, when you do mini-batching in uh, neural machine translation, the way you do it is you stack together multiple sentences um, and then at the same time, in a single GPU operation, you predict the first word. Um, Then in another GPU operation, you predict the second word. Um, And the difficulty in getting that to be efficient is basically um, if you remember the hierarchical softmax, you have this branching, uh, this tree structure where you're predicting um, uh, whether you go up or down at the first one, then you're predicting whether you go up or down at the second one. Um, But because these predictions don't share parameters among the various nodes in the, um, uh, among the various nodes in the uh, in the tree basically they are not in order to get the parameters in the correct shape to um, to perform this prediction you have to do a lot of moving memory around um, it's it's definitely not anywhere near it's not anywhere near trivial to make sure that you can, get the memory in the correct shape to make all of these predictions um, at once. It's even worse when you're actually trying to generate uh, predictions, because when you're trying to generate predictions, you actually have to calculate the entire tree and not just the path along the tree that leads to the word that you're trying to predict. Um, So because of this, um, it's just... Quite a, like it's not impossible to implement, but it's very highly likely that you won't want to be doing that uh, um, yourself. Uh, and it, it will definitely be slower than uh, our, our proposed method where it's basically just a single matrix multiply followed by a sigmoid function to predict 0 or 1 for each
1: bit. So, so the, another method that uh people talk about a lot as noise contrast estimation. Um, mm-hmm. My understanding is that we can only use noise contrast estimation while training, but we cannot really use it to speed up things at testing time. Could you explain this or elaborate a little bit so that the audience uh, know what you're talking about?
2: Yeah, so ba- basically um, noise contrast estimation, um, and there's also kind of a, a group of methods that are all um, sampling Sampling based methods, subsampling based methods for training uh, neural network models. And the way these methods work is when we train a neural network model, basically we want to raise the, or a neural machine translation model, for example, or language model, we want to raise the probability of the actual next word and decrease the probability of all the other words in the vocabulary. Um, but in order to do that, we need to calculate the scores of all the words in the vocabulary. So sampling-based methods, instead of calculating for all the all the words in the vocabulary, calculate for a subset of those scores, and they randomly sample these negative examples. Um, and that's a good uh, it's a good method for training time because instead of using you know uh, a million words, you just uh, randomly sample. 50 words that you want to be using as your negative examples, um, but the bad thing about this method is at test time you still need to calculate the scores for all of the words because you need them to decide uh, which um, yeah you need them to decide which word you want to be outputting next. So in general, you can't use the sit test time in uh, neural machine translation systems.
1: Cool. Uh, I think that's uh, all for this paper. Um do you have any last uh, thoughts um, about uh, either this paper or machine translation in general that uh, you'd like to mention? Um, I,
2: I think, well, my, my thought about this paper is this paper is super easy to implement. So everybody uh, <laughs> go and try it out and find the problems and, uh, and tell us or uh, fix them yourselves. So the, I, um, I think it, it's a fun exercise that you can do. Um, Machine translation in general, I, I think, I guess it's just reiterating what I said at the beginning. This is a very exciting time uh, to be a machine translation researcher because I think um, you know, we're getting to the point where uh, MT is usable in a lot of languages, um, it, but it's by no means perfect, even in the very big languages. And there's still a lot of work to be done um, for domains where we don't have data or languages where we don't have very much data. And um, it's easy to engineer new models using the frameworks we have now. So um, yeah, I, I hope people continue to be interested in new new NLP people who are listening. Uh, think that it's an interesting problem to work on.
1: Excellent. Thank you very much for joining us today, Graham.
2: Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me.